You'll find this morning's reading on page 1136 in your Bibles. It's Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 30, through to the end of chapter 10. Page 1136. Israel's unbelief. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a, a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes it in this way. The righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard 
through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. This is the word of the Lord. Christ has regarded my helpless estate and have shed his own blood for my soul. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come now to meditate on your word, that that would be our cry. Forgive us, Father, for where we struggle to listen. And we pray, Father, that you would help us in our weakness and help us, Father, to declare that Christ has done it all. And we ask in his name. Amen. Please do take a seat. And it would be a great help if you could keep that passage open. Uh, It's on page 1136, 1136. On the back of your handouts, you'll see there's another three points. And uh, that should hopefully help navigate this quite tricky passage. I haven't given you verse numbers, so um, I will do that now. Um, The first uh, point refers uh, from 9 verse 30 to 10 verse 4, and then uh, the second one, 10 verse 4 to 10 verse 12, and then number 3 is 13 to 21. A few years back, uh, when I was a younger Christian, I found myself in a conversation with a friend outside a kebab shop, of all places. And um, this friend, he's uh, got a church background, so he's pretty well informed. In fact, when I was a young Christian, he knew more of the Bible than I did. But he's, he would no longer call himself a Christian. And we were in a discussion about forgiveness, and I was explaining how a lot of people get forgiveness wrong. And I was explaining how Israel had made the mistake and uh, lots of people do today. And he stopped me and said, yeah, but that doesn't sound very fair on Israel. We're talking about Old Testament Israel here. It sounds like God has got a plan B with Jesus. That God kind of tried his best with Israel, but now he's kind of given up because it didn't work. And I remember thinking, I don't quite know what to say to that. wonder how you would answer it if you were in my shoes. See, it's a big problem, isn't it, if that was the case, that if Israel was just a failed project, that God had a plan, but he couldn't quite pull it off, it would bring into question God's character. I mean, if he can't pull off his plan to save Israel, how do we know he can pull off his plan to save us? See, that is the heart of the issue in these chapters, uh, Romans 9 to 11. They're all about proving this point that we saw last week, verse 9 verse 6, It is not as though God's word has failed. See, Paul wants us to be really assured in these chapters to know that God's word never fails. And last week, he pointed the camera up at God 
and asked, has God failed in any way? And in case we're in any doubt, that his answer was no. But this week, in chapter 10, Paul turns the camera 180 degrees and focuses it on Israel themselves to work out what went wrong. Now, in my previous life in the financial world, um, when something did go wrong, um, a firm went bust or something like that, we'd ask three questions. First of all, what, what's the exact problem? What has gone wrong? Let's try and understand that. Secondly, were there any warning signs of that problem? We'll look at the accounts, that kind of type of thing. And then thirdly, what do we learn from this? What are the implications? And that's what I want us to do this morning in um, these three points. We're going to look at the failure. What actually went wrong with Old Testament Israel? Secondly, was there any evidence? Did God kind of lead them up a blind alley? And then thirdly, what's the outcome for us today? So what went wrong? First of all, the failure. Because Israel seemed to have everything going for them, didn't they? They had God's law. And in 10 verse 2, Paul says they've got zeal for God. These aren't just kind of nominal uh, believers. They're, they're, They're very zealous for God. And yet, he says, that when it comes to winning the prize of righteousness, of becoming right with God, they failed. And to rub salt in the wounds, um, others who didn't have the law or didn't have the zeal for God succeeded in becoming right with God. Have a look at 9 verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles, that's non-Israelites, who pursue righteousness have obtained it a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. It's like two people um, set out to run a marathon. I don't know much about that myself, but uh, you can ask others. Uh, One trains for this marathon for months. They change their diet, they work out uh, where they need to run, what evening they need to run on, and they spend months training for this marathon. The other person just stays on the sofa And they eat what they've always eaten, and they do what they've always done. And then the day comes for the marathon. Now, the one who's trained starts running, but as they get round, they get out of breath, and they collapse, and they have to bail out. But the one who didn't train waltzes around the track and gets a medal at the end. I mean, that's what it sounds like, doesn't it? The Gentiles, they don't have the law. They didn't often care about God, but lots of them, Paul says, are now coming into the kingdom and getting right with God. Yet most of Israel, who care about holiness, have failed. Seems very strange, doesn't it? Why has that happened? Well, he gives us the answer in verse 32. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. So he says that they approached everything the wrong way around, not in faith, but as something to work for. See, there are two ways you can understand the Bible. Either you can see the Bible as a target, a target to reach, or a gift, a gift to receive. See, a lot of people, I think, if you went out into the streets and asked people, they imagine that the Bible is like a target, contains lots of do's and don'ts, and our job is to try and hit the bullseye. And we kind of fail a couple of times, we practice and practice, and we get closer and closer to the bullseye. But there's another way to see the Bible, and it's as a gift. What do you do with a gift? Well, you receive it. You just say thank you. And Israel have made the fundamental error of taking the gift of God's uh, righteousness 
and treating it like a target, something to achieve. See, they thought when God gave his law, they needed to kind of drum up the effort in themselves to hit the bullseye. It's like receiving your birthday present, the day comes, you open the present, it's great, it's a a new watch or um, something like that, and and you get your wallet out and say, okay, what's the damage? I mean, don't do that, That's, uh, that's not the appropriate way to respond, is it? And Israel haven't done the appropriate response. They've tried to achieve what was meant to be believed. And they've missed the whole point. See, I hope we've seen this last week and we see it this week again, that the gospel isn't a message that says, pull your socks up. It's a message that says you cannot do it. You cannot pull your socks up. You don't even want to pull your socks up. But God has done it for you. See, Christianity, at its heart, is believing what God has done already in Jesus Christ, not about achieving your own righteousness. And if we take the gift of God's righteousness and treat it like a target, we miss the whole point. Now, what I find interesting here is how this is a particular danger for religious types. Now notice here, it's not the kind of irreligious, it's not the immoral who lose out, it's not the prodigal sons. It is actually people who care about God's honour. Who people, people who think getting right with God is important. But they make the big mistake of thinking they can get right with God under their own steam. See, if you're going to truly love Jesus, it starts from abandoning your own claim to righteousness. There's a story about um, when Admiral Nelson defeated the French Admiral, and the French Admiral uh, walked up to Nelson to shake his hand and congratulate him on the battle, but Nelson stopped him and said, Sir, your sword first. And that is how we come to Jesus. It's only when we hand over our own pretense of righteousness that we can truly embrace Jesus. And that is exactly what Israel didn't do. They tried to make themselves right. And so many people in our land make the same mistake, thinking that their efforts, their performance, is going to get them right with God. Some of us might be asking, though, um, is that really right? I mean, has Paul really understood things right here? I mean, it's all very well and good teaching that Jesus uh, makes us right with God. But what about the law? Surely the law was about achieving, not believing. Well, that's uh, what Paul goes on to in this second point, uh, in verses 4 to 12. See, in these verses, Paul is dealing with those who say, you cannot blame Israel for treating the law like a target, because that's what the law is. And in verse 5, Paul quotes from a bit of the law that actually sounds like a target. Have a look at verse 5. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. You can just imagine, can't you, Paul's opponents in the background saying, look, it's the, read what it says, Paul. It's the one who does these commandments who will live. See, Moses taught that righteousness comes from right living, not believing. Well, Paul goes on in this next section to show us that that is not the complete picture. And uh, he gets us to do a Bible study on the Old Testament and to see how Moses understood the law. 
So for the next few minutes, I want Paul to be our home group leader or house group leader, and uh, he's going to take us through Deuteronomy 30. Now, we're going to go a bit quickly, so if, um, if we've got a bit relaxed, if the breakfast is starting to get in the bloodstream and make us tired, let's, um, let's uh, give ourselves a bit of energy. Uh, turn to Deuteronomy 30. It's never easy preaching after a breakfast. It's... Deuteronomy 30. Keep a finger in Romans, we'll go back there. And the bit Paul um, looks in at is verse 11, Deuteronomy 30, it's page 209. I think that's the last Russell. So verse, uh, verse 11. Uh, this is what Moses says to Israel just before he dies. Now what I, command, what I am commanding to you today is not too difficult for you. Or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven, so you have to ask who will ascend into heaven and get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you have to ask who will cross the sea and get it and proclaim it to us that we may obey it. No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. See, Moses is basically saying there that, look, the law isn't, uh, what I'm commanding to you today is not an impossible task. You don't have to go up to the moon to do it. You don't have to go to the bottom of the ocean to obey what I'm commanding. It's near you. You can do it, guys. But the key question to ask here is what is Moses saying they can do? I mean, is Moses saying you can keep the law under your own steam? Well, glance uh, back over the page at chapter 29. You'll see there the little title given there is the Renewal of the Covenant. And uh, this is where Moses sets out the blessings of the covenant and also the curses. And he says, look, if you obey it, you will remain blessed. But if you disobey it, all curses will come on you. And now look at chapter 30, verse 1. What happens? Moses says this about the future. When all these blessings and curses... Have, I have set before you come upon you, and you take them to heart, and wherever the Lord God disperses you among the nations. Now Moses wasn't famous for his optimism. He could see that Israel would disobey, and they would be cursed. But look at what God will do in verse 3, chapter 30. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes, and have compassion on you, and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. So he's saying, God won't just leave them. He will have mercy. He will forgive. And then what we do, verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. See, Moses promises that God will do open heart surgery so that his people will love him. Now, if that's confusing... Well done for keeping with me if you've done that. If it's confusing, come back in now. Because when Mo- here's the point. When Moses says it's not too difficult for you, it comes with all this baggage. It comes with all the baggage of knowing that you will fail. That you need God's mercy. That you need God to change your heart. So the main point is that Moses isn't saying, look, you guys, you can keep the law under your own steam. He's saying you need grace. You need God to work, to change you. In other words, Moses taught that the law was never just a target. 
It was a gift. See, the law worked a bit like, another example here, a mirror. See, a mirror is very useful, isn't it? It reveals what you're really like. You can get out of bed, you don't look at yourself and you think, I must look very presentable today. And then you look at the mirror and think, my goodness, I need some work. Or you sit there and you feel pretty young and youthful, but then you hold up the mirror and you see some wrinkles and you see how the hair is thinning on top, and then you realize what you're really like. And the law does the same thing. It is like a mirror. It shows what our hearts are really like so that we know we, only, uh, so we, we know that we need a solution from God and God alone. See, that is the lesson Israel didn't get. They miss what Moses says. They thought they could just achieve. But they miss the fact they needed grace. Come back to Romans 10. I'm sorry if you've taken your finger out. Uh, Romans 10, 1137. Because here Paul uses these verses but goes one step further. Because he says that solution Moses looked to is now here. Look at verse 6 of chapter 10. But the righteousness, recognize these verses, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe him in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, Paul quotes the same words as Moses to say, look, you don't, it's it's possible, guys. You don't need to try and reach heaven with a rich religious CV or a super spiritual experience. Jesus has come. He's done it. He's all what we need. You don't need to go to the depths to search for an answer, to work out how we reach God. Jesus has already come and reached us. Rather, verse 9 It is about receiving what Jesus has already done. Believing in your heart. This week, I'm sure lots of us have seen the D-Day celebrations. Um, Some great pictures, aren't there, of uh, people who um, sacrificed so much uh, during those days. And we've been thinking a lot about the sacrifice they've made and the liberty we enjoy today because of what they did well, imagine I thought to myself, it'd be a good idea that I celebrate by doing my own D-Day. And I hired for myself a dinghy from Southampton, and I stormed Normandy, and I started running around trying to fight the enemy. That would be very inappropriate, just in case you're in any doubt. See, the right response is to realize that those guys did something I can't, couldn't do. I wasn't alive to do it. But they've done it for me. My response is just merely to say thank you. And it's the same with Jesus. Moses said you need God's grace. You cannot do it yourself. And Jesus has come and he has won it for us. And our true response, our right response is just to say thank you. There might be some of us here this morning who need to hear that at the moment. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and the main thing that's keeping you back is thinking that I just need to sort myself out first. I need to work on that sin, or I need to get my life in with the right priorities, then I'll be ready to come to God. But that is to make a mistake. It's to do things the wrong way around. 
Christianity is not about making ourselves presentable so that God will accept us. It's knowing that we're not, but he already has in Jesus. Perhaps others of us here this morning would call ourselves Christian, but we still feel that pressure to prove something to ourselves or to others. And so we set ourselves the challenge of not falling into a particular sin or achieving a certain image, and then we mess up, and then we feel a failure, and we kind of turn in on ourselves and push out God. But Moses says, look, you guys, you can't succeed on your own. It's not about proving yourself that you can keep the rules. That is a recipe for disaster. There's only one way to righteousness, and it's by believing, not achieving So where does that leave us at the end of all this? Israel, we see, missed the point of the law. They tried to achieve what was meant to be believed. And it sounds like a complete failure, doesn't it? Perhaps my friend was right. But actually, Paul doesn't leave things on a sour note. He shows us what God is doing through that unbelief. And that takes us on to our third point, the outcome. Even if someone persists in trying to achieve, anyone can believe. Now, first of all here, Paul is not naive about Israel rejecting Jesus, but he wants us to be absolutely clear that failure is all on one side. And so in verse 14, he outlines the chain of communication that needs to take place if someone is to believe in Jesus. He says, look, if you're to believe in Jesus, a whole load of processes need to take place before then. If you're to believe, you need to hear what you're to believe. And if you're to hear, you need someone to preach to you. And if someone's to preach to you, they need to be sent to you. And in verse 15, he asks the question, has that process taken place? Verse 15, and how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. doesn't seem to answer the question straight away, but he's quoting there from Isaiah where Isaiah announces the day where God will send his messenger to bring news of salvation. And Paul does something interesting with this quote. See, in the original, it's just a single person's feet. But here he changes it to a plural. And Paul is using that to say that he and all the apostles are fulfilling what was promised in Isaiah's day. They are the sent ones. In fact, that's what the word apostle means. See, there's no excuse. Israel as has heard, verse 18. But I asked, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. See, Paul says, look, the news about Jesus isn't secret. It's not being kept in a jar under a lid. God has done everything possible to make sure Israel has heard. I mean, where did Jesus go? Israel. Where were the 12 disciples sent first? Israel. Where did the early church start? Israel. There's not an information problem, Paul says. Rather, it is a heart problem. Old Testament Israel are just too stubborn to accept they need righteousness from God. But you might expect that to be the end of the story, but Paul says, look at what God is doing through that stubbornness. Have a look at verse 20. Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. 
But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held my hands out to a disobedient and obstinate people. See, again, uh, he's quoting from Isaiah, and uh, Isaiah looks to a day when God's news of salvation goes global. And God says, look, I hold my hands out to my people, but I'm going to take my message out to those who did not seek me, who did not ask for me. See, Paul is saying, look, Israel may be being stubborn. It may not want to change its heart, but where they refuse, God doesn't stop. He takes his message out to others. I was trying to imagine what this looked like, and um, I was trying to think of an example of stubbornness, and for some reason a toddler uh, popped into my mind. And I, I was thinking it's a bit like a toddler at a birthday party. And this toddler, I'm naming no names, uh, is sitting there, he's enjoying himself, uh, and it's time for cake at the party. And this massive chocolate cake is brought out, and his mother cuts him a piece of this cake but she knows that if uh, her toddler eats this in one go, he will be sick, and no one wants a sick child at a party. And so she cuts the cake up into little pieces. But as soon as she does it, you guys are smiling, you've been here before, uh, as soon as she does it, he says, no, I, I want to do it myself. I want to use that sharp knife. I want to cut it up myself. And he starts to throw a tantrum. And so she says, fine, look, if you don't want it, suit yourself. I'll leave it here in case you change your mind. And meanwhile, she goes away and she cuts up the rest of this chocolate cake and starts handing it out to other children. And they are overjoyed. They're more than willing to accept cut-up cake. But even then, she turns to her son and says, will you not come? Will you not enjoy some? And Paul says that is what God is doing in his day. The fact there's been widespread rejection of Jesus doesn't cause God to give up or snatch away his salvation from an unappreciative world. He holds his arms open, but takes that news of salvation to others across the globe. I don't know about you, but when I was looking at this this week, I found this a remarkable picture of God's character. But it's a character we see time and time again revealed in Jesus Christ. See, Jesus came to his people knowing that it will end with his arms outstretched on wood and nail. And even when that happened, he then sent his apostles to his people with their arms open with the offer of forgiveness. And even after that, when they're rejected and driven out of synagogues and executed, he holds his arms open to the rest of the world. His grace overflows to others. See, we see today, don't we, another reason why God's word has not failed. No, it was a failure of Israel to understand what it was about. Even Moses taught them the need to believe. And when Israel refuses that word, that word just spills out to others. I don't know about you, but I think it's sometimes easy to look at the rejection of the gospel in our nation and and kind of despair, to become a grumpy old man. We think our nation's had such a rich history. We've had the Bible. We had the Reformation hit us. What's happened? What's gone wrong? But Paul reminds us here that hope is not lost. God is still at work. He's still holding his arms open to disobedient people. And he's sharing his grace across the world. A few things to take away from this. 
First of all, beware religious unbelief. Beware religious unbelief. I think um, we see here that it's very possible to be very, very religious and remain an unbeliever. See, if your religion is about building up credit with God, then you've missed the point. And there are, in our nation, people who are very religious, very zealous for God. Those are good things. But they care very little about where that righteousness comes from. And when they do that, they miss out what everything is about. That they need grace. Secondly, pray for the salvation of religious people. Pray for the salvation of religious people. Notice what Paul does in 10 verse 1. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God. See, Paul does not despair. He does not sit back. He prays for salvation. He knows God hasn't given up. He knows he doesn't give up. And there is such a need, isn't there, in our society. There are many, many people in churches, in mosques, in temples, in synagogues, thinking their good works will win them uh, an entry into God's kingdom on the last day. And I was looking at this thinking, do I pray like Paul does? Do I pray with confidence for their salvation? Thirdly, remember the old, old story. There are two things that make us a Christian, and they're there in verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We need to remember that at its heart, the gospel is this. We don't need special powers. We don't need a super spiritual CV. We don't need a special spiritual access pass. Jesus has done everything necessary. And becoming a Christian isn't to do loads of wonderful and wild things. It is just to take that step of saying, I believe. In fact, I prayed a prayer like that back in November 2003. And that moment, I became a Christian. And it's the same for anyone here today. No matter your background, no matter your sin, no matter your failures, God promises to you that if you call on him, you will be saved. Let's pray. (coughs) Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Our Father, forgive us for when we are foolish and commit the same mistake that Israel does here. Forgive us, Father, when we've tried to prove our self-righteousness, when we've tried to achieve what needs to be believed. Help expose that, Father, by your Spirit's work. Please help us to turn from that. And we ask, Father, for those uh, who perhaps have got confused over this, that you would encourage us that the Lord Jesus has achieved what we could not achieve ourselves. Father, please give us confidence in these truths. Please help us to see things as you've presented here. In Jesus' name, amen.